All right, hey, let's take a few minutes. Let's review. Um, again, I'm a professor and not just a speaker, so I'm always wanting to review, and I think it's important. But if this stuff matters, it's really good to not let it... You know, um, any good study about how people learn will tell you that if you only hear things... Usually within 15 minutes of when you heard things, 90% of what you heard is already gone. So the way you work against that is you try to write things down and you try to review a little bit. So let's get you to reflect a little bit. What were some big points from the last hour that we spent together? Just in general, what are some big things that that came across? And then we'll make some applications from what you say. Big ideas. Okay, great. Yes. And, And that's one I'm really hoping sticks with you a long, long time is that marriage is not primarily about me. Good. What else? Okay, so, yeah, so what we're wanting to be thinking about, if it's not primarily about me, it is about God, so my life needs to be oriented in a worship mentality. I'm thinking, Lord, how in this moment can I worship you? Good. What else? Not being alone with God's idea. Yeah. Okay, that's great, Gary. Thank you for bringing that out. Because I, I want to say that a little differently now than I said at the first hour. It's simply this. If marriage is primarily about me, then marriage is primarily about having my needs met. If, however, marriage is primarily about God, then I'm seeking how I can meet others' needs and how I can serve Him. And so the focus shifts outward instead of primarily inward. Okay, that's what, That was the Austin Powers reference. If you've not seen the movie, don't recommend it highly. But if you, most people in the culture do know it. And that idea that you complete me, and you have little mini-me saying, you complete me, and you, that whole thing, that that's really dominates a lot of our marriage visions. And I would suggest to you that's not a biblical point of view. Okay, good. What other big ideas from the first hour? Okay, good, Jack. That's a very good segue. So I want to suggest to you that the very happiest marriages are not the ones that are most problem-free. The very happiest marriages are not the ones that are most problem-free. In fact, that's an illusion. That's that, that there are no problem-free marriages. Sinners bump into each other. That's one of the reasons we gave you the uh, when sinners say I do, because that's the fact of the matter is that you, you and I are both the... In your marriage, you're the biggest sinner in your marriage. We'll talk about that after lunch. But because of that, we're all going to bump into another sinner and there's going to be problems. But the happiest marriages are those that are willing to work through those because there's a higher purpose both for our whole lives as well as for our marriages in specific. So as we think that thing through then, that's what we're about. So the first hour, really what I tried to do is lay out a foundation to say this is how God built it. And then... If that's the way God built it, that's our baseline of thinking. Then the second thing we want to talk about this morning is what went wrong. How did we get into so much trouble? After lunch, when we come back, we'll talk about how we understand forgiveness and restoration. And then if that's true, if we can have forgiveness and restoration both between us and God as well as with one another, then how could we go on in our last talk and live our lives for God's glory in a way that's significantly impacting our church and our culture? So that's kind of the direction that we're going on this. So to think this thing through again, let me tell you a story about, um, this is a true story. It's actually kind of amazing. I guess I bump into these because I teach people this. And so the topic of marriage is on my mind a whole lot. And I tend to, I guess, I, I don't even realize it, but sometimes I'll ask questions that get at a heart quickly. And, I, and so here's another one. I told you about the barber yesterday, uh, Tiffany, my one that was cutting my hair. About four years ago, I was on an airplane and this is literally the timing. I got onto the airplane. I sat down. It was a U.S. or a uh, Southwest flight. So you know how if, if you fly Southwest, you know that uh, they do just random seating. So when you get on the plane first, people usually sit on the window seat and the aisle seat. And then everybody looks down so that nobody will sit in the middle seat between them. <laughs> you want to have a little arm room on that. So, But this was an entirely full flight. So I was one of the first ones on. I was sitting on the aisle seat, and there was somebody in the window seat. And as the flight filled up, this, this and it's always a large man, and this guy was actually larger than me. Uh, he came and he sat down in the seat in between there. So within him sitting down, I just leaned over to him. I said, hey, my name's Mark. What's your name? And he, 
So, so, so what do you do? Uh, told me that. And I said, do you have any kids? And he started crying. I said, what did I do? You know, I'm sorry, man. Yeah, but, but what happened was um, he went on just in that short of amount of time of being friendly with him. He went on to say um, that I am currently married, but I'm in the middle of a very, very difficult divorce. And what happened was um, my wife and I were married for three years. We have a child. And she started working for a company where she had to travel. And during her travels, she met a man in Washington, D.C. that I knew nothing about. And an affair started and that she'd been having an affair for nine months. And she just told him like a week prior that she wanted a divorce. She was leaving. Everything came out of the blue for him. So in the middle of that conversation, then I, I, uh, I leaned over to or I, you know, as we were talking, I just kind of said, you know, so... Tell me about your spiritual life. Is there any, any background there? Do you have any spiritual context in which you can begin to work through this? Because that's really the place you're going to find any hope. And his comment back to me was, yes, my wife and I are both Christians and attend an evangelical church. And at that moment, my heart dropped and I said, how did we get here? How do we get to the place where in the culture, the people who are supposed to understand that marriage is supposed to reflect back to God the glory that he's due have the same divorce rate as those who don't know Jesus? How do we get here? Why, why is it that, that humans who were built to live together for something bigger are not living that way? And even those who are calling on the name of Christ are not committed to this. How did we get to this place in our world, in our culture, maybe in our history? That, that's where I want to, to think through with you today as we talk through some, some scripture and to think it. So let's, let's grab our Bibles again. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to, if, if you will la- allow me to, as we work through the first 12 verses of Genesis chapter 3, I want you to look for with me the patterns of humans. The patterns of humans. Okay, so while this is Adam and Eve's story, I think in that story we can find our story. And that's really an important part of this passage. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 and we'll stop and engage that a little bit. And then we'll go on and finish up reading the rest of the text after we do that. So follow with me. I'll read 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the Lord God, or excuse me, he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat for from it or touch it or you will die. And then the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, and you'll know good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. All right, let's go and just do some out loud Bible study together as we work through this passage here. What are some of the things you notice from the first, say, two or three verses of this passage of Scripture? What are some things that stick out to you as you've heard that read or as you're looking at it here? Okay, Satan's attack is against God's truthfulness. Okay, that's, that's good. That's a really important element of this. What else do you notice? What do you see in the passage here? Okay, so here in this specific context, we have the temptation coming from the serpent. But really in life around us, we can have all kinds of things challenge whether or not what God said is true. Yeah, very, very good point. Good. What else do you notice from the first couple of verses here?
Okay. Yeah, good. So to follow Nikki's point, if you're looking at your Bible then, if you go back on chapter 2, we skipped over these in the first session together, but if you look at verses 16 or 17, after the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to cultivate and keep it, it's then that he gave Adam the commands where Eve wasn't there yet. He gives Adam the command. He says, don't eat. You can eat from any tree, but from these, this tree, don't eat from it because the day you do, you'll die. And so it's really interesting when you start this passage to notice that Satan's going after Eve. Okay, so there's something that's important for us to see there, that he's having this conversation with Eve. Now, what do you notice about what Eve understands about the garden? Not quite exactly worded the same way the command was given to Good, Gary. Tell me more. What do you see there in the text? She says something about touching it. God didn't say anything about not touching it. Okay, so in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, that's kind of where, where Gary is on that. So if you'll notice in verses 2 and 3, Eve gets the story right, right? Hey, we're allowed to eat from anything. And I do want you to get this picture of what God has done. God has created Adam. He's placed him in a garden. He gives him a helper who's suitable for him so that together they might worship and obey. But notice that their context is a garden that's absolutely stunningly full. Any tree you can have. Any tree. There's only one place I don't want you to go. Okay, Any tree. It's lavished upon you. You can have it all. There's one place I don't want you to go. Now, when Genesis chapter 3 starts, where are they? They're at the one tree, right? Anywhere you want to be. But somehow they've, they've kind of gravitated over to this, this one tree. And in there they get into a conversation. Yeah. It is notable that they were not barred from the tree of life at that point. They hadn't eaten it, but they weren't barred from it either at this point. Yeah. So don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that's really good. Yeah. Sure, Gary. Yeah. That's a great question. And in fact, large philosophy classes and books are done on that particular question. Uh, so, but not wanting to fully dodge the question and answer you, I, I think you're exactly right. She doesn't know what it is yet, but the idea that there's something being withheld from her begins to work in her heart. Yeah, I think that's really an important important question. I think a common misconception I have for a long time about this, and maybe it's from the children's Bibles, have a picture of Eve standing there with the serpent, and you don't see Adam until later, mm-hmm. that it was just Eve and the serpent there. And that, that kind of let Adam off the hook to an extent. But mm-hmm. then when you read... Um, she took the fruit and ate it, and she gave some to her husband, who was with her. She didn't like. It wasn't like the serpent tempted her. She ate it, and then she took the fruit in the basket and walked back to wherever they were and gave the fruit to Adam. And he was unaware of what maybe what fruit she was eating, or you know, all of that. He was standing there, right there. He heard, heard the whole spiel that the serpent gave to Eve, and he was just you know right there. And I just think I missed that. I, I missed that for a long time. <clears throat> Okay. You see paintings of the whole temptation of Eve. Yeah. Adam's not in the painting, you know, or whatever. Yeah, you know, you go to the dentist office, and if the dentist's a Christian, he's got those old Bible books that are out there, and, you know, Eve's got the hair, and it covers all the right places, and there's bushes, and the whole thing like that. Yeah, and you wonder where Adam is in the picture on that. But Gary's exactly right. Look at verse 6, and look at the end of verse 6 in particular. Where is Adam? How does the Bible say it? He's with her. Okay, so now if we go with your thought there and we start to put this together a little bit, then what's going on? Adam is taken by God. He's put in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. Adam, don't eat from this tree. The day you eat it, you'll die. Here's your helper. She, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the Hebrew for helper, suitable, is actually, it means that she's your helpmate. She's not in charge. You are, Adam. Okay. So now in verse 3, this conversation starts. You kind of wonder, you know, we're Adam and Eve just kind of strolling along. And, and as they're having a nice walk in the cool of the day, as the text will go on and tell us in a few minutes, they're having this nice... And then they end up at this tree, and they get in the conversation with a serpent. Well, there's a lot there that, it's, that we won't go into today that we could speculate on. But while they're hearing this conversation, Satan begins to tempt Eve. Why is Adam silent? And is there part of my story in Adam's story? 
See, here's what happens, I think, in the text here is that the serpent says to her, take it and eat it. And what happens to Eve? Look at verses 5 and 6. What happens to her mind, her heart? What, does, what begins to go on? What do the words there tell us? Okay, I do think that's some of the fruit will, that will come out of that. It's exactly right on there. Let's, for a minute here, before we actually, that's a really great application. Before we do that, just what does the verse 6 tell us about the engine of Eve's heart? Curiosity. She's curious. She hears it, and all of a sudden, this thing that she's been told, and you know, part of this, we wonder, Adam, you know, did Adam even add this extra rule? Because God told Adam, don't eat from it. Eve says, don't eat it or even touch it. And you kind of wonder if, you know, Adam was, don't even go near that thing. You know, you know, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us that. But she says, you shouldn't eat it or touch it because in that day you'll die. She gets, she gets this information largely correct. But then the engine of her heart sees it and it becomes desirable for her. And in that desirableness, what does she do? She takes it. Now, Eve, I think, were in proper biblical understanding to say that Eve was deceived at this moment. And perhaps, I don't want to be too stereotypical, and I, we have to be very careful of that, but perhaps what that might tell us is, in, in our story, perhaps it's the, the struggle for, that's common to women. Let me say it that way. Not everyone necessarily, but the, the struggle might be the temptation towards that which is desirable to think that's going to fill me in ways that it was not designed to fill me. Whether that be clothes or I, my 12-year-old has an obsession with earrings right now. You know, Everything's about earrings on her birthday. and you know, Is that going to fill her or is she just going to want the next earring? But the temptation of her heart might be one in which the deception of the beautiful things on the world might become something that she's willing to compromise for. Maybe we could find a little bit of our story there. But what really interests me is Adam. Because if you will, keep your finger here. If you will, go on over to 1 Timothy and look at chapter 2. And I want you to notice in these verses, in verses uh, 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, I want you to notice what is said, but also what's very clearly implied. Verse 13 says, For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So Paul's talking about the headship within uh, life and church and some things. But notice verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived. So what we learn here is that Eve, in this context in Genesis, she's walking through, she's following her husband, they get to the tree, and as they're there at the tree, she's deceived by the lies of hell. She takes the fruit and she eats. But Adam was not deceived. And he's standing with her, verse 6. So if Adam is right there and he's not deceived... What is Adam doing? He willfully disobeys the commands of God. See, while Eve falls into deception, Adam is a flat-out rebel. And the way he's a rebel is a passive wimp. Okay, you see that in the text here? So in other words, if Adam was leading well, what would you have expected him to do in verses 5 and 6? What? Yeah, Eve, don't eat that thing. Slap it out of her hand. Lead. Stand up. Be a man. But instead, and, and my brothers and sisters... I have to fight this with everything in me as a man. And I want to challenge all of you here. Beware the nice Christian man syndrome. 
The one who says, well, you know, I just, I don't really get in the way of anything in my house. My, you know, it's really my wife's job to get the kids to church. I'm just going to make sure that everything kind of goes nicely and I'm going to kind of stand back and I'm going to allow the spiritual life of the home to be something that really is about my wife kind of leading the way. No! Stand up! Be a man! If the kids need to be in church, you take them to church. If you need to be in church, get your butt out of bed and take them to church. Take yourself to church. Get your family there. Set the sails in your home so that your spiritual winds of God can blow in your family. But Adam instead passively watches his wife go into sin. She plucks from the fruit. She turns and gives the fruit to Adam. Now, how courageous is Adam at that moment? See, he he knows what's going on. He's got it clearly in his mind. The Lord said to him, don't eat from this tree. His wife plucks the fruit. And what does the command say? The day that you eat from it, you'll die. So how courageous is Adam? You think about it. He's using... We like to watch Hogan's Heroes. Does anybody know, watch the old reruns of Hogan's Heroes? Some of you older folks might know this, but if you don't know the story, it's a, it's a prison camp in Germany. It's a comedy. Bing Cosby was the writer of this whole TV show. And the two bumbling fools on the German prison camp are Colonel Klink and Sergeant Schultz. And Sergeant Schultz is this big fat guy, and he's kind of a, a comic relief in the show. But whenever Colonel Klink's afraid that his food is poisoned, he has Sergeant Schultz eat the food so that he won't die. Now look at Adam. In the day that you eat from it, you will die. His wife's holding the fruit. He's getting, she's getting ready to bite it, and Adam lets her eat it. How courageous is that? And I want to suggest to us that as men in our culture, part of our story is we tend to be passive wimps on the places that we should be standing up and leading like men. How do I serve? How do I lead? How do I protect? So perhaps we have someone who tends towards deception for the things that sparkle in this world and some that tend toward passive rebellion. And when you put those people in marriage together, they're going to bump all over the place. So then we read the saddest verses in the Bible. Look at verses 7 and 8. I personally think these are the saddest verses in the Bible. When you think about this context that they were living in. Verse 7, And then, after they ate, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, And the very first thing they did was they sewed fig leaves together to make a covering for their loins. They covered up what demonstrated their sexuality because they were so ashamed of what had just happened. I have a friend who describes this as the first case of vain religion on the planet. Doing something to make us look right in the eyes of God that is totally foolish. Covering themselves up. And then, look at these words. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. Would you look back at verse 8 again just real quickly? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. In the garden, in the cool of the day. Imagine what that relationship was like before they sinned. That they would go on strolls in a lavish garden where they would oftentimes bump into the Lord. Imagine what that was like. Now think about this. Those of you who are parents, I know you guys can probably understand this right off the bat. Those who are parents, when you guys are asleep, Jack and Carrie, when you guys are asleep, can you hear your children's footsteps and wake up. Okay, those of you who are married and have kids, you know what I'm talking about there? You can hear your foot, children's footsteps. And not only can you hear, can you, do you know which one it is by the sound of the footprints? Why? How, can someone, how could a parent wake up out of dead sleep? I sleep with a fan every night. In fact, I even travel with one. I put it on when I go into the hotel room. Just some, one of those people that needs some white noise. And I can be dead asleep in my house, and I can hear children's footsteps in my house, 
And I can not only wake up out of that dead sleep just by their footsteps, but I'll know which kid it is. Now, how would that be possible? Because I've been with them. Notice what this text is trying to... Adam and Eve are... They're there and they hear the sound of the Lord's footsteps. How do they know? It wasn't an elephant. They're so familiar. The Lord gives them this beautiful relationship. And look what they've thrown away. Now... The, the audacity gets worse. Look at this. So they're, not only are they throwing this away, but th- this is actually quite humorous to think about this for a minute. What do Adam and Eve do when they hear the footsteps? Verse 8. Okay, they run and hide. And let's stop for a minute and say the obvious. Who are they trying to hide from? The sovereign omniscient, which means all-knowing God of the universe. Right? So there they are, and they say, Where? Oh, God's coming. Let's hide. And so what do they, they, they go and they, they take a little fig leaf and they cover themselves, and then they hide behind a bush. <laughs> They're not very bright at this point, are they? Now think that, look at what it says. That, and then the Lord calls out to the man. Why is that significant? Verse 9. The Lord calls out to the man. It's, that's a responsibility. And men, when the Lord looks at your home, he's calling out you. What are you doing in your home to lead your family well? The Lord calls out to the man and he says to him, where are you? Now let's stop for a minute and think about that for a second. Do you think God didn't know? All right, since you didn't answer me and you're smiling, I'm guessing that you, you, God knew. So why would God ask that question? What's God doing? Giving Adam a chance to respond. Yeah. Yep. He's giving Adam a chance to respond. Now, I, I just get a kick out of it because I think about this again. Think about my children are getting older, but I can remember very well when they were two and three years old, and I played hide-and-go-seek with them. Remember those days for some of you that have kids? And what's it like? Or if you've ever babysat, you might want to try this sometimes. It's really fun. You, could, you close your eyes and you start counting with your hands over your eyes. One, two. And the kids, when they're two, three years old, they get all kind of giggly, right? John, do your kids do this? And, and where do they hide? Not very well. Yeah. <laughs> they don't hide very well. So, yeah, you know, your countenance, one, two, three, and the kids are and they're running and they're stamping and they go. And they hide behind, like, the curtain and you see their feet, right? <laughs> and so what do you do as dad? Act like you don't know Yeah, you act like you don't know Hey, okay, are the kids, are they in the toaster? <laughs> you know, they're not in the cupboard. They're not hiding under the rug. And the whole time the kid's over there, you know, they're giggling. (laughs) Dad knows exactly where the kid is. What's the dad doing? Well, he's giving the kid the opportunity to experience reality, if you will. And so he's playing the game with it. Well, God is in this place. He knows exactly where Adam's. What he's doing, he's calling out to Adam so Adam will find out where Adam is. Do you understand that point? That God, by calling out, where are you, is not because God's lost. It's because Adam is lost and Adam doesn't know it. Yeah, please. Well, yeah, in fact, if you want to talk more about this during break or over lunch, I'd be happy to do so with it. But my speculation is that uh, the first sin was actually Adam's. That see, Eve was deceived, Adam rebelled. So while she was the first one to bite the fruit, Adam had already abdicated his, his role as leader, lover, husband, protector. And so it really, in pride, he's already rejecting God. Now, in time, that happens through the eating of the fruit. But in the terms of the motives of their heart, Adam has already made a decision. I'm, I'm not being who you asked me to be, God. Um, so we could talk more about that. I'm doing some speculation there, and so I have to be really careful with that. But that's, yeah, yeah. But that's a, that's a really great question on that.
Okay, so notice what happens then. They not only have broken relationship with God. If you look down here, look what happens in the following verses here. So they hear the sound, and Adam's response in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And then God replies and says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And look at this incredibly heroic response right here. I mean, it's, yeah, it's unbelievable how good he is at this point. Adam says, It was her fault! But is that all he says? He says, It was the woman that you gave me. And so begins a long and tragic history of men shifting blame. And if they can't shift it to their wives, they'll shift it to God. I can't believe that you put me in a marriage like this, God. When all the while, maybe it was me that made the marriage this way. And we tend to be blame shifters. Is Eve any better? Actually, I think she's a little bit better. She says it was a servant that deceived me. And that's, that's true. But likewise, she's not saying, God, I'm sorry. Where's the, hey, God, I'm, I'm sorry from either one of these two. And so what happens is not only is their vertical relationship with God's broken, but now they're blame shifting and you see the struggle between husband and wife becomes very front and center. Not willing to take on responsibility and own their own sin, they're now finding other places to point. And as you can imagine, what that does in a marriage today is that the primary energies of our heart are to find out what the other person has done to us instead of what I have done to the other person. So stop for a minute and just think about the way you argue. Is the first thing you go to what someone has done to you or what you've done to the other? I know where my heart is on that. Give you a little light humor at this point. There's a, a story of a man boarding an airplane and he's seated next to a woman who's wearing the most stunning, big, and beautifulest diamond ring that he has ever seen. So he comments about this to the woman and asks her about it. And she says, it's the Klopman diamond. And it comes, even though it's beautiful, it comes with a curse. And the man says to her, oh, what's the curse? And she says, Mr. Klopman. See, in, in that little bit of humor in the joke there, the tendency, again, notice the energy of the heart is that the problem is with the other. And that tends to be our perspective on that. So what's the role of responsibility? Maybe Adam's job was to say, I'm responsible, God. I'll take responsibility for this marriage. I'll confess that I was wrong and that I've sinned. Perhaps the responsibility for Eve was to say, even though I was deceived, I was wrong. I should have never picked that fruit in the first place. I shouldn't have offered it to my husband. Maybe both of us are wrong. I want you to beware four killers in marriage. You see that on your notes there if you want to take a peek at that here. Four killers in marriage. One of them is deception. What I mean by that is Eve was deceived and allowed, other, uh, allowed herself to buy others' lies. Ladies, one of the temptations that will be, and this will be true for men as well, this is a, this deception is something that can happen to anybody, but it is something that I do think um, Nancy Lee DeMoss has written a book called The Lies Women Believe, and if you don't have that book, ladies, I would highly and strongly recommend that for you, The Lies Women Believe, and it talks about ten different lies that women tend to be uh, susceptible to. Whether it's a male or a female, deception can come through ignorance. In other words, you've not studied well enough to know truth. And the remedy for that is being a person of the book. So in marriage, if you're in marriage and you're not a person who's regularly reading your Bible, then how are you going to correct bad ideas? So a great application point would then be to try to kill ignorance. But another place in which this comes from is, is the constant voices of our culture that are telling us certain things. And if you think about the Oprahs of the world, the Dr. Phil's of the world, they will tell you things along the lines of your experience is the most important thing going on in your life. The chief source of truth in your life are your personal feelings. And I would suggest to you that that's a lie from hell. 
Deception comes when we begin to think that my experience is so raw that I can't find truth anywhere else than I just have to be true to myself. And that language in our culture is a lie from hell. Because what if you're true to yourself and you find out you're a jerk? You really want to be true to that? Wouldn't it be far better to be true to a source of truth that's outside of ourselves? That's a place that's a killer in marriage. A second place that's a killer in marriage is passivity. So men, very specifically for you, but really for you ladies as well, have you abdicated your role of responsibility in your marriage? Are there places in which you've neglected to be the one that's setting the standard for your family's spiritual growth? Men for you in particular. Are you setting the standard? In other words, when your kids wake up, if you're married and have children, when your kids wake up, do they notice in the morning when they come out for breakfast that dad's reading his Bible? When a wife wakes up and she comes out, does she recognize that her husband's already had a a morning devotional time? Husband, when you come home from work and your wife's absolutely blown from having the kids around, do you take the children so that she can get some time to nurture her soul a little bit? What are you doing to lead? Are you being forward in the way that you're serving and loving and leading in your family? Passivity will kill a marriage. And this will also happen in in, uh, arguments. Who, when you're having an argument with each other, is the first one to come back for reconciliation, not for winning? The passive man will sit back and wait for someone to come to them first, or they'll be more concerned about winning. The biblical man goes and says, I'm not exactly sure if we can figure out all your sin, but I've been spending time thinking about my sin, and here's where I need to say I'm sorry. Again, we'll come back to that after lunch. Third, killer in marriage, blame shifting and denial. This is your fault, not mine. Be very, very careful when when your engine of your heart moves to the other person's faults. And then finally, just a sense of rebellion. Hey, you know what? Lederbach, you can tell me all you want all day today, but at the end of the day, I'm really not going to go anywhere different. That heart is a heart of rebellion. Check that in yourself. It'll kill your marriage. So... Let me bring us to look at a couple more spots real quickly, and we'll, we'll bring our time together to close in, in about the next 10 minutes by just thinking through this together. Look back at verse 9 in chapter 3. God's asking a question that I honestly think He's asking each one of you here today, and He's asking this of myself as well. And the question is, where are you? As we've been together for just this morning time together, I think it's really an important thing for us to be hearing this question from God. Where specifically are you? In your marriage, has your marriage gotten lost? And are you perhaps part of that, a couple who's lost in the purposes of your life? Or perhaps even as an individual, are you lost in relation to God? Do you know where you are and your right standing with God? And that could be someone in the room might not even be uh, at a place where they could honestly call themselves a follower of Christ. Some could be in the room who would say, yes, I've made a decision to be a follower of Christ, but lately I've been lost. And I think it's really important for us to understand that the starting place then of healing for marriage and restoration of marriage is to come back and understanding the basics of what God built us for. So if you will, let's look at one more passage this morning before we break for lunch. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to follow along with me here to see... The same story, but now the consequences of the same story. So we've seen how God made us, and now we've seen how sin entered into the world and how human beings have made decisions to either be um, passive or rebellious but in, or even just through deception making wrong choices. And here's the fruit of that. Look, follow with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here's the fruit of what we've earned from our rebel, our, our rebel hearts. And you were dead in your trespasses and uh, trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the, of the 
sorry, I'm, my eyes are getting a little older, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of our mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Let me think with you out loud. Remember what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, in the day that you eat from it, you will die. You ever stop to ask the question, why didn't Adam and Eve drop dead as soon as they, they bit the fruit? Maybe death is more than physical. What happened, really, I would suggest to you the most important definition of death is when our relationship with God is broken. Any hope for fullness of life is now gone. All the body's doing now is catching up with what's already true. And so when it says in Ephesians verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, that when we in our sins are separated from God, we've become children of wrath. We're already in a disposition before God where He's wrathful towards us because of the sin that not only did Adam and Eve commit, but that I participate in every single day when I do things wrong. That makes me a child of wrath because of my own rebellion. That's the bad news. The good news is the very first word of the next verse. See, what we had earned was God's wrath towards us because of our sin, but, and that's an incredibly beautiful word in the Scriptures, but God, who has been rich in mercy to us because of His great love with which He caused uh, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. In other words, even though we had earned this through Adam and then Eve and then through ourselves, even though we have earned this wrath of God, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and he's raised us up with him. He's seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches. Look at verse 7 real closely. Do you remember what was supposed to happen before Adam and Eve sinned? They were built to be worshipers who had the entire world to live God's glory in. And they lost that. But here back in verse 7, it says, Through Christ dying on the cross for our sins, that can be restored to us. So that God wants to show us in the ages to come the riches of His grace and kindness through Christ Jesus. So look at verses 8 for a moment. Verse 8 for a moment. Three crucial words. If you like to write in your Bible, I would suggest you underline three words. And those three words would be grace, saved, and faith. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace... Let's stop for a minute and talk it together about that. What is, how would we define the word grace? Okay, good, Titus. Yeah, you, receiving something you don't deserve. That's a great, a great illustration. Anybody else want to... What would you understand grace to be? Yeah. Okay, an undeserved kindness on our behalf on that. So let's say Fudd and I are at the top of uh, we're at the top of some skyscraper. Okay, that's let's say four stories tall to make it at least somewhat realistic. Okay, and we're having a conversation up there, and I push Fudd off. He somehow lives. He, he lands on the ground. He thuds. Fudd thuds, and <laughs> he gets back up. And somehow he comes back to the top of the building, and I'm still there, standing by the side of the building. What do I deserve? Boom. Right? Now, what if at that moment, Fudd takes his wallet out and gives me a hundred bucks? What would you say about Fudd? Or he's stupid, right? One of the... <laughs> yeah, no, you would say that that's... When we talk about grace, what I deserved was to be pushed off the side of the building. But what I got was something unexpected and incredible. So when this verse says, we were dead and we had earned God's wrath, but God did something for us, verse 8 is helping us to understand that it's through God's unmerited riches, something I didn't earn, God is richly blessing me. Now it says, for by grace you've been saved. What have we been saved from? Yeah, the, the Genesis 2, 16, 17. In the day you eat from it, you will die. And so you earned wrath. So by God's ravishing gift... You've been rescued from what you earned. How's that happen? What does the verse say? It happens by faith. So here's the key question. And this is true for you if you're not a Christian and you're here today, or if you are a Christian and you've already made a decision to place your faith in Christ. 
This is still crucially the important question that makes marriages change for God's glory. Who does your faith need to be in in order to be saved by grace? So you can have lots of faith. Like, for example, I could have faith that this chair right here is going to hold me up. What's the problem, however? There's no chair here. So I could have all the faith in the world and I go to sit down in this chair. Will this chair hold me up? Because there's nothing there. So the key is not what my, that I have faith. It's the object of my faith. So what does a person's faith need to be in in order to be saved by grace? In the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. Now I'm assuming most, if not all of you, have already made that decision somewhere in your life. This, folks, though, is also the basis by which we can move in strength in our marriage to forgive those who, just like me, was not worthy of being forgiven. And so a gospel-centered marriage, a marriage that worships, places this truth of forgiveness at the center of who I am. The way we got to where we are, God built the universe so that we would live for his glory and worship. The way that we got to where we are is that we entered into the same sin patterns of Adam and Eve and uh, participated them ourselves. The way out is through the cross and through Jesus dying on that cross for us. So if you've already made that decision, then what that means is you're always returning to that truth as the basis by which I forgive my spouse and find my security. See, if I'm so secure in my relationship with God, then if my spouse sins against me, then I know I'm already set here so I can withstand this here. Let's figure out how to solve it. But if I don't have it right here, and this is where I've placed all my hope, and that person's sinning against me, I'm out of here. I'll find someone else who's better. So the hope of marriage, both for the non-believer and the believer, is always a return to who we are in Christ. If you'll look at the end of your notes there for for talk number two then. Here's where I want you to think about some big ideas. If it's true that God's built us to worship and he's placed us in the garden to cultivate and keep and so our lives should be one in which everything is worship, then I want to suggest to you that really where we've come to at at this point is that everything that you do in your life is an act of worship. The real question now, because of sin entering the world, is not if you're worshiping, but rather who you're worshiping and if you're doing it well or not, how you're worshiping. The question is not if you're worshiping, but what are you worshiping? How are you worshiping? And so the question we want to ask for ourselves is, what difference does knowing who we are, or excuse me, what we were built for, and then what Christ saved us from, how should that then begin to morph our lives and shape our lives? So if you look down on here, the two questions are simply this. What difference does this make for our marriage? And what's the highest end for which my marriage exists? If the highest end is my, mar- my life and my marriage should be for God's glory, then the question comes, I've got to start thinking about what should I be doing in my own life. So take a second. And answer this question, if you will, on that little black uh, box that I put on there. How might these truths affect the way that a couple begins to handle conflict in marriage? Or if you will, I put a second version of the same question on there. How might these truths of what we are made for and what Christ has done for us affect the way a couple fights for their marriage, not just in their marriage? Why don't you all take a few minutes to do that, and then we'll, we'll close our time out together. Now, some of you, that's a little heady question. In other words, you don't tend to think so much in the kind of the idea level. What you like to do is where's the rubber meet the road? 
So if you will, if you look on the last big box on this section, here's a very specific skill. And I want to highly, highly recommend this for you to practice very, very frequently in your marriage. This will transform, even if you're not a believer, just this simple discipline would transform the way a couple could face uh, struggle points in their marriage. Uh, at, our, at our seminary, uh, the man who I'm closest to in our counseling department is a doc, uh, Dr. Williams, Sam Williams. He's a very good friend of mine. And Sam does a lot of marriage counseling. And what he's discovered over the years as he does his marriage counseling, and I see it all the time, and I'm sure your pastors here do as well, is that when people come in for some help with their marriages, almost every single time they will start with how they've been sinned against. The grief is what someone has done to me. The very first homework assignment that he always gives to people when they come in for marriage counseling is this week I want you to come home, go home and I want you to spend this week thinking about the ways you've sinned against your spouse and make that list first. So that's what I'm asking you to do at the bottom of the last part of the section here. Is it could be the case that your spouse is really wicked towards you at times. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that doesn't happen in every one of our marriages at points pretty significantly. But it's also the case that you're pretty wicked towards your spouse. So the proper discipline for the Christian is to say, okay, what are three ways that I tend to fail my spouse? And that's where I would really encourage you to spend some very specific time and to do this frequently. Where are places that I'm currently failing my spouse? Because maybe, I don't even know it, but I'm setting her up or him up to be ticked at me. Take a moment. Do do that. Do a little bit right there. thinking for about 20 seconds, you can probably already tell that this is one that needs longer. So um, here's what I would encourage you to do. Uh, we're going to break for lunch in just a few minutes. John's going to come up and pray for our meal and give us some instruction about that. But um, of, of all of the different specific skills, those little blocks I put on your outline, if you leave here and don't do any other one, do that one. Take time to think through that one. That's really an important one. And the follow-up to it is plan a date with your spouse and the two of you go out and, and have some time of confession so that the motivation of the time you're together is to say, you know what, I've, as I've thought this through, here are the ways that I've sinned against you and I, I, I want this meal to be my opportunity to say to you that I'm sorry that I've failed you this way. And I bet that would start to bring some serious healing. Even for those of you who have great marriages, this is really a great pattern for us to set up and and to walk through to become even better marriages on that.